Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Uh, I had a scary thought this morning. It's only 17 days till Christmas. Who's ready? <laughs> yes, I'm not. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do thank you we can be here and I pray your word would speak into our hearts and minds and, Father, fuel our passion, not just for you but for this region and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got uh, one simple question for us this morning uh, which spins out of the reading today. It's, do I care spiritually about Manly? Now, if you don't live in Manly, think of the Northern Beaches, uh, think of this region. Uh, there's no doubt for me we live in an age of great apathy, uh, particularly when it comes to things that are spiritual. It's really the exception to meet people who are, if I can say, seeking to find peace with God. Uh, the kind of standard default position I meet with most people in the community is that uh, really they're too busy, they don't care, uh, they're not interested. Uh, there might be a God, there might not be, um, but really they're just too busy to look after themselves in a spiritual sense and to pursue certainty when it comes to God. And I discovered this week there's a new name for this condition. Uh, I stumbled across it. It's called apatheism. So it's a play on the word to be an atheist, but it's not an atheist, it's an apatheist. And it can be defined this way. Uh, it's to act with apathy, disregard or lack of interest towards belief or disbelief in a deity. An apatheist is someone who is not interested in either accepting or denying the claims that gods exist or do not exist. In other words, an apatheist is someone who considers the question of the existence of gods as neither meaningful nor relevant to their lives. They're apathetic when it comes to the question of God. They just don't care because it just isn't relevant to the world that they live in. Now, I wonder, have you met people like that? Any nods? Yeah. I meet lots of people like that and I think it's actually a very good name to sum up so many of the people that I come into contact and I'm sure you do the same. But it's interesting, you know, I think there's no doubt that is part of the malaise we've got spiritually in the current world we live in, but it affects us as Christians. Um, apathy towards God isn't just something that, if I can say, the community suffers from when it comes to the questions of God. It can affect us just as much. Uh, we can easily get to the point of feeling that when it comes to developing our faith, uh, to serving in church ministry, to reaching out to others, to sharing the gospel with friends and neighbours, that I just haven't got time or the inclination. Um, I'm just too busy. And we become apathetic in our spiritual lives about seeing God's kingdom grow. And I was with the staff this week at a uh, seminar on leadership and there's an interesting phrase. Uh, the guy said, there's a new form of spirituality in the world today. And this new form of spirituality is called busyness. How often do you hear people say, I'm so busy? I, I hear it all the time. Now, it's worth saying, you'll hear it from me. And if you've spoken to me recently, I've been saying, I'm so busy. Now, the pay dirt of the spirituality of busyness is this. Do you know what you reap from busyness? Tiredness. Uh, it's not fruitfulness in the Christian faith. It's tiredness. And I think what it will do to you is it dulls the emotions and the passions that we have for Christ, and not just Christ, but for life. You just feel tired. 
and you just think, I just want a holiday. And you think 17 days to Christmas is kind of bittersweet. You think all the things I'm going to get ready to, but 17 days and then the holiday season comes. You think, what a relief. And I start this way because we come to a passage that is a very striking one. And it's striking for the emotions and the passion that you encounter when you read this part of Luke's Gospel. Let me ask some diagnostic questions about our own levels of apathy. Do I care spiritually about the growth of this church? Am I passionate about God's kingdom here and elsewhere? Do I care about the people of Manly in a spiritual sense, that I'm praying for people's salvation? Am I moved from a deep sense of compassion that my friends, my family don't know the Lord Jesus? And I reckon the way you can see the answer to that question is really in our prayer lives because apathy strikes most at our hearts and our prayers. And you'll see a person's passion when you hear them pray. And you'll see a person's passion when you see, well, you don't see, but you know what the reality is in their quiet time before God. How desirous they are to know him and to serve him and to see his kingdom flourish. Well, let's open up the Bibles. If you've still got them open, it's page 1040. It's Luke 19, verse 28 to 44. Let me read to you from verse 28, the first verse. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, uh, that's great. But let me just make a couple of introductory comments uh, on this passage. Jesus is firstly heading into Jerusalem. Now, if you've read through Luke's Gospel, he's been heading to Jerusalem for now 10 chapters. Since chapter 9, he's been journeying and it said he set his face towards Jerusalem. Well, he's finally about to arrive there. And the second thing to note is this passage in particular is often spoken on or read on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is historically the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And it's spoken on because Palm Sunday in church tradition has been the Sunday that recognises, remembers, uh, when the people laid down palm branches on the road as Jesus went on the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, Luke, Matthew, Mark all record this story Luke, interestingly, records it more from the disciples' point of view and he doesn't record the crowds cutting the branches off the palm trees and putting the palms down. They just record, well, Luke just records that they put some of their cloaks down. But if you read Matthew and Mark, they talk about the palms being laid down and this is where we have Palm Sunday from. It's a day of celebrating in some ways. But the third thing to note here is the remarkable contrasting emotions that are in this passage. There's remarkable emotions here. You've got incredible joy as the disciples gain this sense of excitement as Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the donkey. We're going to come to that. You've got the Pharisees and they haven't really changed form at all. What are they doing? Well, they're grumbling again. I mean, there's no surprises there. Uh, They're not happy with Jesus. They're grumbling. But you see this very striking powerful picture of Jesus and amidst the joy 
and the grumbling, there's weeping. Uh, there is great sadness and great compassion being expressed. And you see, the story of Jesus ends in Jerusalem. It's the climax of his ministry. It's the climax of his life. And really, the closer you get to the end of his story, the stronger the emotions that are evoked from all those in the story, both the disciples, the opposition in terms of the religious leaders and the grumbling and the hatred, but also from Jesus himself, the great sense of sadness about what is to take place and what is taking place in front of him. And there are tears here. And it's interesting because, you see, the closer you get to understanding the cross of Christ, you have those same emotions. When you understand the reality of what Christ has done for us, well, at one level, there's great joy, isn't there? But there's another sense there's great shame and tears as we realise our contribution in Jesus hanging on the cross. And so as we look and learn from Jesus today, who is so moved by the spiritual plight of his people, the question that I think we're helped to answer is this. Um, how do I spiritually develop a heart? How do I care for this place we live in? Because you see in this story his great care for his people. And if I'm feeling spiritually jaded or tired, and, and I know that's kind of almost the inevitable position so many of us end up in at this time of the year as you finish the year and as you try and get ready for Christmas and you wind things up and life gets busy and we all get tired, how do we not be jaded and apathetic in our faith? I want to say two things. First is this, uh, we need to get gospel clarity on who Jesus is, his identity. The closer you get to Jerusalem, the clearer the picture Luke gives us about his identity. And so if you go back to the start and the Christmas story which we were at this time last year, it's been a long journey, you see that this Jesus is someone who will fulfil all the hopes and the aspirations of the people of God. There's so many Old Testament quotes of how he will, this child, fulfil the prophecies. And he is the one that they look to to fulfil all of their hopes in God. He enters the stage of world history and he begins to do these incredible miracles. He teaches with great authority. And so you notice from the very beginning there is the, the touch, the mark of God upon this man's life. But they're all wondering who he is. Uh, you get to the halfway turning point in the story at Caesarea Philippi and just to his disciples, in a private moment, he asked them, who do you say I am? And they say, look, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, some a prophet. And he says, well, now, who do you say I am? And he says, Peter, in this moment of divine revelation, says you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised, hopeful king. And Jesus says, you're right, but this news is private news. He doesn't let it out to the world. He doesn't let it out to the crowds. He doesn't let it out to his opposition. But now things change. This is the beginning of him declaring to the world who he is. And it's not with words, it's with actions. They're prophetic actions. So have a look at the text there, verse 29. As he approached Bethage 
and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Now, there are two very deliberate actions here by the Lord Jesus. We may not be as familiar with them. Um, The geography is very significant. Now, the Mount of Olives looked across on the city of Jerusalem and you might think, well, he just went there to get a nice view. But no, there's something far more profound happening. He goes to the Mount of Olives because this is the place that was spoken of in the Old Testament that the king would come. I'll read to you from Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is one of those books that um, often we avoid because it's very difficult. Uh, And there is no doubt, it's one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament and particularly the second half of it. But it also is one of the books that has more predictions than most of all the Old Testament books about the coming of Jesus. And one of them says this, Zechariah 14, verse 3 and 4, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. That's the day he'll take his stand on the Mount of Olives, facing Jerusalem from the east. Jesus' entrance is intentional. He comes to the Mount of Olives to fulfil this prophecy, but Zechariah in chapter 9 also has another word to say about this promised king. Zechariah 9 verse 9, it's a very famous prophecy. Shout and cheer, daughter of Zion. In other words, be really excited. Raise the roof, daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because your king is coming. A good king who will make all things right. You see, this is what they look forward to. Someone who is going to come and restore order to the people of God who would, in their minds, I want to say not God's mind, kick the Romans out. And it says, this good king who will make all things right, he will come, a humble king riding on a donkey, a mere colt of a donkey. Now, there's no accident about what's happening. Jesus knows the Old Testament and as he enters Jerusalem, he comes from the Mount of Olives, the place where the king would make his stand. And he comes riding on a colt, on a donkey, as the king who would make all things right. And you see, he is declaring now to everyone Actually, I am the promised king. This is the first time in his ministry he is making a public declaration about his identity. And it's through the fulfilment of prophetic words by his actions. I just want you to stop and think for this for a moment. The question of who Jesus is, I think, is one of the most important questions people can have. In fact, there's probably not a greater question than to work out who Jesus is. And the Gospels are all about this. And this is a very significant moment in the Gospels to help people work out in his day, who is this man? Jesus is saying, actually, I am the king of the world, the promised Messiah. Now, this is a very important question. Next year, uh, we're going to have a big focus on this for a month running up to Easter. And historically, when people have run missions, we've invited people to us to let people know who Jesus is. This is actually going to be quite different. Uh, From the 17th of March up to Easter, uh, there is one question that the churches across the northern beaches combined uh, 
are going to be asking our community and beginning a conversation. And it's a very simple question, Jesus is. And we actually want to start a conversation with people around this question. How would you complete the sentence, Jesus is? You know, Jesus is closer than my barista. Um, Jesus is more important than surfing. Jesus is the one who saved my life. Jesus is the coming king. Now, I know that when you listen to the community, you're going to get lots of answers uh, that aren't what we would say. Jesus is just like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha, is what they might say. And we want to start a conversation with the community on this very question because, you see, the quest to know God finds clarity when you ask and answer this question and when you discover the answer to this. Now, we're going to invite people all around the region to wear this T-shirt so that when you're out there exercising, having fun, whatever, with your friends, neighbours, whoever, people are going to ask you, what is that? And we're just going to simply say, we want to invite people to complete the sentence. How would you complete that sentence? And so begin a conversation. And there's 20 churches across the northern beaches that with one voice are going to be starting this conversation. Look forward. This is just to let you know. But you see... The reality of this in the passage here, you see, Luke is wanting to provoke us to think Jesus is doing this. Who do you say I am? Listen to what happens as he rides in on the donkey. Well, they brought the donkey to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And friends, there is just great joy here. As this coming King rides into the city of God's people. His city, you might say. The crowds are filled with joy. And you see, when you work out who Jesus is, it will fill your hearts with joy when you accept him for who he is into your life as the king and as the saviour. I want you to stop and reflect. As we come to this Christmas season, how big is your view of Jesus? How big is your view of Jesus? Is he just a religious figure that sits under a tree that we acknowledge in this season and pay homage to at Easter time? Or is he someone who is far greater? Is he the one who you recognise is the king of kings? Is he the one that you realise has authority over all people? It's interesting that he rode in on a donkey. You see, if you were a king in an army in that day, what kind of animal would you choose to ride into a city in victory? Let me tell you, it wouldn't be a donkey, would it? You would find the most magnificent steed and you would saddle it and you would have your army behind you and you would sit back and you would ride into town as the powerful king. People did ride in on donkeys for certain occasions. Priests might ride in. Do you know why they would choose a donkey 
It was symbolic of humility and that you came to bring peace. You came to bring peace. And you see this great, magnificent king, he doesn't ride in on a magnificent steed to kick out the Romans. No, he rides in on this humble donkey so that he can bring peace to the people of God and help people find peace with God. That is our king. The one who has all authority, who was there at the very beginning of creation throwing the stars into space, comes in incredible humility and he comes to bring peace. And Jesus is the one who dies for us and forgives us. He is the one who can change us and give our life meaning and purpose. He is the one who can heal every broken heart and forgive every person's sins. He is the one who rose from the dead and can give hope and certainty and a future to every single person who will turn to him as Lord and Saviour. He is the one who is the name above every name. He is the King of Kings. And you see, if you want your heart to be revived and to have passion for this city, do you know where it starts? It starts with getting an ever-increasing, bigger picture of who Jesus is. And the greater the clarity you get on him, the more it will lead you to worship him and the more you'll want others to know him. You see, the drive for Jesus is is driven by our worship of Jesus. We love him, he saves us, he's restored us and we want the world to know. It's not driven by guilt. It's driven by a love for him. He is the name that is above every name. And we want people to discover that now in our postmodern world. We need to begin a conversation to start that. But that's exactly what we want to do. But secondly, I think if we need to break the apathy, we need to get gospel clarity on the consequences of rejecting Jesus. And this is where you see the bittersweet side of this passage. And it's the bittersweet side of the gospel. It's the bittersweet side of the cross. There is joy in this passage, but there are tears in this passage. The Pharisees reject Jesus. They grumble. Let's have a look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And you can see what they're saying. Um, Jesus, you shouldn't be accepting this praise. They're quoting Psalm 118. All glory to the king who is riding before the Pharisees. Don't you do that, Jesus. And they're grumbling. He's accepting praise as the coming king. Note Jesus' response. I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. In other words, you might be able to silence the people, but you can't silence creation. All of creation knows who is riding in on this donkey and they will not keep quiet. Even the stones will cry out and acknowledge that the king is now amongst you. Which leads us to this incredible scene. You see, the thing that strikes me is this. I think if it was me, I would be angry. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) 
Have you ever felt that, like, it's kind of, it's, it's just a natural human pride that, you know, you think, don't they know who I am? They should recognise me for, you know, whatever it is you want to be recognised for. <laughs> Jesus, uh, there's no sense of, kind of, if I can say, pride here or arrogance. There's just this incredible compassion and love for people who are rejecting him. As he approached Jerusalem 41, he sees the city. And he's got these contrasting emotions around him. People praising him with joy, Pharisees grumbling. And he knows what's in the hearts of the men and women. And, and he says with tears in his eyes, if, if, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. And you can just hear him, you're so blind. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. And they will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone or another. Why? Because you did not recognise the time of God's coming. And there's only two times in all of the Gospels that Jesus cries. And the word here, it's a very strong word for crying. He is weeping. They have failed to recognise who he is. They failed to realise that on this day, this man would bring them peace with God. They've had their eyes blinded to the reality of the gospel. They didn't recognise when God turned up. I can't think of a worse thing to happen in a person's life. That when God is revealing himself to them, they are blind to it and they just keep walking. And it fills Jesus' heart with tears because he knows the consequence of what that action brings. It brings judgment. And I know judgment is not something that we like to talk about or reflect on, but it is a reality that Jesus spoke most about that of judgment and hell. And there is no sense of vengeance here. There is no sense of hurt pride. There is no sense of joy in seeing his tormentors get their due. No, there is just a deep sense of real sadness. They have missed the life-changing opportunity to get right with God and find peace with him and they've missed it and all they'll find is judgment. It will come in the form of God's enemies at the time, the Roman army. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. The Roman army circled Jerusalem and destroyed the city. But it would come eternally in hell. These are the tears of one who knows deeply the reality of what happens when people reject the Saviour. There is destruction and judgment. 
And much like a child making a foolish mistake and decision, Jesus weeps over a city that is sealing its fate by how they received him. And I want to say to his friends, apathy is wiped away when we realise the destiny of those who reject Jesus. And do we have that gospel clarity in our thinking about our town and about our friends and about our family? That people are lost without Christ. Friends, I want us to be a place that is passionate passionate for God and I think a passion for outreach and to see this church grow and to see the kingdom come starts when we have this clarity and passion about Jesus we understand with crystal clarity how big and wonderful he is and our hearts are filled with joy in knowing him but also at the same time our hearts are filled with great compassion and love for those who don't know him because of what they're missing out and in what they will encounter. And it's both. We want them to know the joy of worshipping and knowing Christ and Him filling their lives with joy and peace and purpose. But we also want them to escape the judgment. And I was reading a lecture by an old friend of mine, Stuart Piggin. He's a church historian from Australia. And he wrote, writes on revivals. He's got a great passion for revival in this country. And he said this in a lecture he gave, the BCA lecture for Bush Church Aid in, a decade ago, 1997. He said about the revivals in Australia, Jesus is the hero and focus of attention of every authentic revival, not the Holy Spirit. Revivals are outpourings of the Spirit, yes. But the Spirit is poured out by Jesus. Quoting Acts 2.33, Jesus is the one who kindles fire on the earth. Jesus is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit poured out a revival blessing, testifies to Jesus, exalts Jesus and exalts the doctrine of his saving grace. And friends, I would love nothing more and I pray regularly that we would see revival here in Manly and that we would see a turning of hearts of men and women, boys and girls to the Lord Jesus in revival power. It will come when we are on our knees, passionate with this huge picture of Jesus and compassionate for our nation, desiring for them to know him. And so, friends, as we hit this busy season of time, and let me say, this sermon is for me, really. Let's not lose the passion for Christ. And let's have a big picture of him as we go into Christmas so that with joy we go out into our suburbs telling people the good news and inviting them to come and hear the good news and beginning conversations about the good news. If you're apathetic and tired and busy, well then today, come back to Christ. And pray he fills your mind and life with a big vision of himself. And by his spirit that he would pour his love and joy back into your life. So that you might get clarity about him and the fate of those who don't know him. And be filled with a passion for the gospel again. Let's stop. 
Let's spend some time just being quiet. And friends, if you need some prayer today that the Spirit of God might re-energise your life and give you a passion for Jesus that maybe you've lost and give you a hunger for people to come to know him, I invite you to come forward afterwards for prayer. I'd love to pray with you. You might just want to pray with someone you're sitting with after the service. But friends, may we be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ in our lives so that we're passionate for him this Christmas season. Let's pray. Let's be quiet and I'll just leave you time to pray and then I'm going to pray for all of us. Spirit of the living God, we pray fall afresh on us today. Break us, mould us, fill us so that we might know more of Jesus. We might have a bigger picture of him. We might have great joy in knowing and serving him. That we might have great love and compassion on those who don't know him. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh, I pray. Amen. We're going to have our final song.